Welcome to Soul Food, a podcast ministry of Calvary Chapel, Princeton, West Virginia. Is it okay? Can you hear me? As Jonathan said, we've been at Calvary Chapel. We study through the Bible verse by verse, and we have been, I have been teaching on 1 Thessalonians, and today we arrive at chapter 5. <clears throat> so if you want to follow us with your Bible. One morning, a pastor decided to drop into one of his young kindergarten classes and just see what the kids were learning. So he walked into the class and he asked the kids, he said, guys, he says, if if I'm really a nice guy and I don't tell stories and don't steal, can I go to heaven? And the class said, no. He said, well, if, what about if I go to church and I give money to missions and I help little old ladies across the street, can I go to heaven? And the kids said, no. And he proceeded along that line of questioning for a little bit. And then finally, each time the children would say no. And finally he said, well, what what do I have to do to go to heaven? And little Billy in the back jumped up and he said, you have to die first. (laughs) Well, that has been the consensus for years and years and years. But last last time we studied, we talked in chapter 4, Paul talked about the rapture. And there is a generation that will not taste death. There is a generation that won't have to die to go to heaven. And we talked about that last time. He, Paul taught us that uh, we might even be that generation because the rapture is the next thing on God's calendar to happen. No prophecies need to f- be fulfilled for that to be the next event. Well, today, uh, the first verse there, uh, Paul starts out with the word but. He's making a transition yet he's staying in the broader topic of the end times. He moves from talking about the blessing of being uh, in the rapture for believers to the judgment of unbelievers. He says there, he says, but I have no need to write unto you of the times and seasons. Well, times denotes a period of time in a larger segment of time as opposed to seasons, which are specific points of time. Times and seasons, these are two terms used as measurements of time and the character. One denotes the, the general area of, of, of time, and the other notes the character of the time, respectively. Many Thessalonians believed in their lifetime that they were going to see the return of Jesus, and they were confused and grieved that their fellow believers had passed away before Jesus had returned. And this has happened many Many times, I'm, th- I'm sure, throughout history, I'm sure during World War II, people thought, Jesus is coming. I'm sure during the Civil War, people thought, hey, this lines up with the Bible, Jesus is coming. So there's been these periods of time that we've seen these chaotic events. Paul says here, brethren, I have no need that I write unto you. Apparently, He's saying the Thessalonians knew God all that God intended believers to know about the coming judgment. And Paul had taught them what they hadn't known about the rapture in verse uh, chapter 4, verses 13 through 18. So he had told them to live godly lives in the light of the coming judgment of the world rather than to be distracted by trying to figure out when or set dates as to when Jesus would reappear. They could know the timing of God's final judgment They could not know the timing, I'm sorry, of God's final judgment, but they would know that it was coming at a time that was unexpected. 
Paul had no more idea of when this would happen than you and I do. He was like us in that he was to watch and to be ready. The Lord comes in an hour when, he, when we think not. Paul had gone into detail here about what they could expect at the coming of Christ. And now it's our part, just as it was their part, to watch and be ready. He did not intend, God does not intend for any of us to know the exact hour. Jesus even said that himself. But we are the children of light. Ephesians chapter 5 verse 8 says, For you were sometimes darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of the light. In verse 2, For you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord cometh as a thief in the night. Well, the day of the Lord is an all-encompassing term which describes the period that begins at the Great Tribulation, which begins after the rapture, and includes the second coming of Christ at the end of the millennial kingdom. It will be unexpected. Matthew 24, verse 37 said, But as the days of Noah were, so shall the coming of the Son of Man be. You see, nobody was expecting rain while Noah was building a boat. Nobody was expecting a flood. But God had already told Noah it was coming. There are 19 indisputable uses of the day of the Lord in the Old Testament and four in the New Testament. In 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 10, he says, But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. The earth also and the works that are therein shall be burned up. This day of the Lord refers to the time from, from the beginning of the tribulation to the end of the millennial kingdom. It's kind of a twofold thing. The Old Testament prophets use this day of the Lord to describe the closely coming historical events that might be happening to, to the Israelites. But also they used it to describe far off eschatological divine judgments. And if you want to read some more about that, you can look in Joel chapter 2, verse 30 and 32, and Zechariah 14.1 and Malachi 4.1. It's also referred to as the day of doom and the day of vengeance. The New Testament calls it the day of wrath. The day of visitation, the great day of Almighty God in Revelation 16:14. These are terrifying judgments from God for the overwhelming sinfulness of the world. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 7 through 10, it says this, And you who were troubled, rest with us, when the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. In flaming fire taking vengeance on them that know not God and that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, who shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power, when he shall come to be glorified in his saints and to be admired in all them that believe, because our testimony among you was believed in that day. The future day of the Lord which unleashes God's wrath, falls into two parts. The first part, as I said earlier, comes at the end of the seven-year tribulation. There's going to be a chaotic time on this earth that we won't experience as Christians. Believers will not taste of that. And you can read about those in Revelation, how that the, the, the sun's going to be turned dark, the moon's going to be turned to blood, the rivers are going to be polluted with uh, all these different things, almost similar to the plagues that befell Egypt. 
That's the first part. The second part will come at the end of the millennial kingdom. They're actually the same event, but they're a thousand years apart. And Peter refers to the end of the thousand-year period in connection with the final day of the Lord. Revelations 20, verse 7 through 15 also talks about that. Here in this particular part, Paul refers to the day of the Lord, which concludes the tribulation period. In Peter 2, uh, 2 Peter 3.10, he says, But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, which the heavens will pass away with a great noise, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works therein will be burned up. A thief in the night phrase here is never used in reference to the rapture of the church. It's used of Christ coming in the day of judgment, the day of the Lord at the end of the seven-year tribulation, which is distinct from the rapture of the church. It's used of the judgment which concludes the millennium in Second Peter. As a thief comes unexpectedly and without warning, so the day of the Lord will come. Why? Because these people aren't looking for God. They're not listening to the Holy Spirit. They're not reading the Bible. They're not in tune with the church. It will catch them just as it caught the people in Noah's day. Jesus explains in the following scripture that no man knows the exact time in Matthew chapter 24 verse 36, but that of that day and hour knoweth no man, no, not the angels of heaven, but my Father only. Let's look at verse 3. For when they shall say, Peace and safety, then sudden destruction cometh upon them all, as travail upon a woman with a child, and they shall not escape. Peace and safety were slogans of the Roman Empire. Peace and safety are slogans of Marxist communists. Peace and safety are slogans of probably every dictator throughout history. When they say peace and safety, we're doing this for your peace and safety. We want to take your guns for peace and safety. There's too much violence in the streets. We want, to do, we want you to do this for your safety and for peace. We want to do that. That's what tyrants do, and that's what evil men do, and they've done it for thousands of years. When they Notice here that Paul keeps switching pronouns here. He says... You don't need me to tell you about the times. But then he says, when they say peace and safety, when they say that, that should be a red flag to you as a Christian. In spite of the imminence of God's judgment, they will continue to say peace and safety. Our political leaders today are always saying something about they're doing peace and safety. As travail upon the woman, the Lord used this same illustration in the Olivet Discourse. It portrays the inevitability. Once those labor pains start, guess what? There's going to be a baby. And once you see these things, Jesus is coming. It's inevitable. Notice in the previous verse, Paul says here, like I said before, he says, you know. Now he says, but they say. The they is the unbelievers. When the unbelieving say it's a time of peace, then sudden destruction comes. We see the, here the comparison of the woman with the child, the suddenness of birth pains. They could come unexpectedly, even though the lady may know she's pregnant. She knows there's a baby on the way, but she tends to carry on with life and be involved with all the issues and things she has to do. But then those pains could 
you know, the doctor may say, that baby's not going to be here for two months or a month or whatever. And the doctor could be wrong. But suddenly, unawares of her, the pains of birth begin. The world at peace has no idea that sudden destruction is upon them. As I said before, the rain was a surprise in Noah's day, but not to Noah. In verse 4, but you brethren, again, here Paul switched. Notice he switched again. He said, they say, now he's saying, but you brethren are not in darkness that that day should overtake you as a thief. Paul dramatically shifts pronouns again here because he wants to talk about the judgment of the day of the Lord. Believers will not be present on the earth to experience its terrors and destruction. He says, you are not in darkness. Believers have no part in the day of the Lord. Why? Because we have been delivered from the domain of darkness and transferred to the kingdom of light. In Colossians 1.13, it says this, He has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of his Son. I like that verse. He conveyed us. He did it. I didn't do it. My righteousness is as filthy rags. The best I can do is never going to be good enough. But the finished work of Jesus' blood upon the cross, he conveyed us to the kingdom of light. And I also wanted to point out that, you know, darkness is always the absence of light. Think about that for a second. Jesus taught that if we believe in him, it would remove a person from spiritual darkness in John chapter 8. There are only two kingdoms. You say, well, you know, I'm just not into all this religious stuff, and I'm not a bad person, and, you know, I'm nice to the neighbors, and, and, and I tip waitresses well, and I help little old ladies across the street, and, uh, you know, I respect our veterans, and, you know, I'm a pretty good person. Well, you know, Jesus said there's only two kingdoms. There's the kingdom of light and the kingdom of darkness. You're either in one or you're in the other. By not choosing to surrender your life to Jesus and be in the kingdom of light, guess what? You're in the kingdom of darkness. Unbelievers are in darkness, engulfed in mental, moral, and spiritual darkness because of sin and unbelief. In, first, in John chapter 1, verse 5, he said, And the light shineth in darkness, and the darkness comprehended it not. In verse chapter 3, verse 19, he said this, And this is the condemnation, that light is come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light, because their deeds were evil. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 17 through 18 says this, this I say therefore and testify in the Lord that you henceforth walk not as other Gentiles walk in the vanity of their mind, having the understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God through the ignorance that is in them because of the blindness of the heart. In Ephesians chapter 8 verse 11, Paul said this, And have no fellowship with unfruitful works of darkness, but rather reprove them. Be careful what you're part of. Be careful what you support. Be careful what you don't stand against. All these people are children of Satan, who is called the power of darkness. The day of the Lord will overtake them suddenly 
and with deadly results. In John chapter 8, verse 44, he said, Jesus talking to the religious leaders, think about that, of the day, said, You are of your father the devil, and the lusts of your father you will do. He was a murderer from the beginning and abode not in the truth, because there is no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks of his own, for he is the liar and, a father, and the father of it. In another place, Jesus said, For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. You know why there's crazy people in the world? Why a lot of people won't like you if you're a Christian? Because the demons in them are not going to like you. They're going to be upset around you in the presence of the Holy Ghost. The presence of God in you is going to set them off. You're not going to be able to be friends with everybody. In verse 5, he says, You are the children of light and the children of the day. We are not of the night nor of darkness. The children of the light is a Hebrew expression, and it char characterizes believers as children of God. Their heavenly Father, who is light and in whom is no darkness at all, they are his children. In 1 John chapter 5, or 1 John chapter 1, 5 through 7 says this, This is the message which we have heard from him and declare to you, that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. None. If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one, with one another. And the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. You see, believers live in a completely different sphere than those who are going to experience this day of the Lord. But there is a warning. Paul says, therefore, in verse 6, let us not sleep as do others, but let us watch and be sober. Let us not sleep because we've been delivered from the domain of darkness. We've been taken out of the night of sin and ignorance. I know the world today wants to portray the churches. Oh, you poor simpletons that believe this old book here. You know, it's just a book of fables. It's not real. And, you know, I've got a Harvard education, and I'm just too smart to believe that. But they don't realize they're the ones in ignorance and darkness because they have failed to believe the truth of God. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. No other way. Buddha won't get you there. Mohammed won't get you there. But the Baha'i faith won't get you there. There's only one way to get there, and that's the truth. Jesus didn't say that there were a lot of truths. He said, I am the truth. That's the bottom line. A lot of folks today are too smart anymore to believe in this old-time religion. You know, we're just, we're just, we're in the modern age. We've got too much, you know, we've, we've got all this technology and we've got these devices that are so amazing. And how can we, how can we believe in this? Because their heart is darkened with sin. Their mind is darkened by sin. And they can't believe the simple truth. That's why Jesus said he would be the stumbling block. He said, Behold, I lay in Zion a cornerstone, but it's going to be a stumbling block. It's going to be a stumbling block. Well, Paul warns us as believers not to fall asleep. 
because we are supposed to be the light and that we should not be in spiritual indifference and comfort, but we should be alert to the spiritual issues around them. We're not to live like sleeping, darkened people who will be jolted out of their coma by the judgment of God coming on the day of the Lord, but to live alert, balanced, godly lives. And this sleep we're talking about is talking about spiritual sleep. Do not be unaware. The sleeping and the waking is learning all we can about the light, which is Jesus. Let his light shine upon us brightly to do away with all darkness. Sober here in verse 6 means to abstain from wine. In other words, don't be drunk when the Lord comes back. Verse 7 says, For they that sleep, sleep in the night, and they that are drunken, are drunk in the night. Most sins are committed at night. That's just a fact. When do people party and get drunk? At night. When do thieves try to break in and steal? At night. Isn't that interesting? Whoever seems to be sinning seems to think that the darkness will cover their sin. In daytime, most people are working and carrying out their livelihood. The light of the day keeps a lot of sins from occurring. In verse 8, it says, But let us who are of the day be sober. Again there, he mentions sober twice, notice. Putting on the breastplate of faith and love and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. Paul pictured the Christian life in military terms because I'm sure he saw a lot of Roman soldiers. He used these military terms as being a life of soberness, alertness, and proper equipping. Be equipped. You know, i got people tell me, I just can't remember those verses. You know, that, that word is so hard to remember, but they can tell you all the stats for every player on, the, on their favorite team, whether it's football, basketball, golf, or NASCAR. And you know what I'm going to say that? That's a load of bunk. You'll do what your heart, where your heart is, where you, that's where your treasure is. So don't tell me that, people. Don't tell me that. Paul uses this term about this military equipment. It's essential for protection. You want to save your family and be sure that you're ready when he comes? How much time are you spending in this? As opposed to how much time you're doing other things. I mean, it's just, I don't want to be beat you up this morning, but let's just get real, okay? Let's just get real. If we want protection against temptation... We want protection against the onslaught of evil that's in our world today. Then we need to know what God's promises are so that we can trust them. We know how to apply God's plan and his truth to our life. In Proverbs 4.22, he said, I love this scripture. He says, guard your heart with all diligence, for out of it flow the issues of life. The most important job you've got is to guard your heart. Because men, you're the spiritual head of the home. It's your job to be a covering for your wife and your children. And if your heart can get corrupted, if the devil can get just that little foothold in your life, he's going to bring chaos to you, to your family, and destruction. You heard what Jesus said about him. He's a liar. The thief comes but to kill, steal, and destroy. And you know what? He's very patient. He'll take a lifetime to get a foot in your door, to get a a step in your heart 
where he can he, he's got all kinds of devices and Paul says we don't we we need to that we're not ignorant of his devices he'll get you miffed off at the church he'll get you upset with the neighbors he'll get you lured away with some temptation he'll get you occupied with with the tyranny of the urgent all this needs to be done and that needs to be done the house needs fixed he'll steal away your time so that you don't have time for this that's what he'll do he's very cunning he's very cunning it's belief in God's word that protects us from temptation's errors looking at it negatively it's unbelief really that characterizes all sin think about that in the garden Eve had a choice God said eat of anything you want just don't mess with this tree right here what did the devil do he come along and he said did God say you can't eat of any of these trees see how he twists and lies he promised her all these great things and what he got what she got from him was she brought death upon her own family she brought death to civilization she brought separation from God and that's the way the devil works she chose not to believe God and believe something else. And that's a constant battle you're going to face every day. It's on the TV. It's in the media. It's everywhere you go. There's hammer, hammer, hammer after hammer coming after you to pound this out of you. All that Jesus thing. You know, he said 2,000 years ago. It's been 2,000 years. He ain't come back yet, man. He ain't coming. You heard that? Huh? All that stuff in the Bible, that's all supernatural. I heard a preacher a couple weeks ago, excellent sermon. I went to Cedar Bluff. Young guy only been saved five years. Had a message. His title of his message was, Is Your Faith Supernatural or Superficial? Young man was powerfully anointed by the Holy Spirit. And you know, that's a question we all need to ask ourselves. Is our faith supernatural or is it superficial? You see, some of us now have become too educated to believe in the supernatural. But God is a supernatural God. He's above what we see, touch, and feel. See, there's two kingdoms out here. There's this physical kingdom that we see that the Bible says is going to burn with a fervent heat. And then there's this spiritual kingdom that God operates in. And there, it's just as real. It's just as real. But Paul says we need to be equipped with this military gear. Faith um, is elsewhere represented in Ephesians as a shield. The helmet's always associated with salvation. Our future salvation is guaranteed. Nothing can take it away, Romans 13, 11 says. And this, and, and do this, knowing the time that is high time to awake out of sleep, for now our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. We know how important faith is because Hebrews says without faith it's impossible to please God. But in Romans 10:9 it speaks of believing in our heart. Then faith is a product of heart uh, of love that's stayed upon God. The brain's the head. It's the, the logic of salvation. It's logical what God has done. We can't save ourselves, so what did he do? He sent his only son to take our penalty and convey us into his kingdom of light. So the logic of salvation is what is meant here by the helmet. We believe in our heart. Our mind gets up on the logic of it. We say, well, that makes sense, you know. 
That's why I need Jesus, because I can't do it myself. And salvation is sensible to the thought of mankind. All people want the hope of salvation. In verse 9, For God has not appointed us to wrath, but to obtain salvation by our Lord Jesus Christ. Wrath, in this context, appears obvious that this wrath refers to God's eternal wrath, not his temporal wrath during the tribulation period, but all of eternity. The wrath of God occurs in the seven-year tribulation period, but God's wrath is saved for those who do not believe in Jesus as their Savior. The thing that saves us is belief in our heart that Jesus was who he said he was, that he suffered on the cross for our sins, that on the third day God raised him from the dead, and that we must confess him with our mouth that Jesus is our Lord. We obtain salvation this way. As I said before, he is the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by him. He said, I am the door. You must enter him to reach the Father. In verse 10, Paul says, Who died for us, that whether we wake or whether we sleep, we live together with him. Wake asleep is an analogy that goes back to chapter 4 and refers to being physically alive or dead and the promise that in either case, whether we're alive or whether we're dead, uh, we will one day live together forever with the Savior who died as a substitute for our sins. Jesus died in our place. He's our substitute. He paid our penalty for sin, which is death. He gave his body on the cross for our sin that we might obtain life through him. This is the, the saying that the dead in Christ and the living in Christ at his coming will partake together in the life of God and the life of him. Wherefore, comfort yourselves together and edify even as you do so. He's saying we should take comfort in the knowledge that no matter how bad it gets here, this is the worst thing we're going to ever experience. But if we're not saved... If we haven't asked Jesus to come into our life and we haven't surrendered our heart to him, this is as good as it's going to get for you. Because it's going to get a whole lot worse for eternity. Just remember that too, that this is a short time. Eternity's a long time. We should take comfort in the knowledge that we'll live with him. We should build each other up and remind each other. You know, it's, it's easy to grow weary. I've been struggling the last two weeks myself. I have had an onslaught, and it's easy. You know, that's the other thing I want to say. The devil, when he starts bounding on you, first thing he wants to do is get you away from the church. If he can't get you away from the Bible, he'll get you away from the church first, and then he'll get you away from the Bible. Today, our world's in upheaval. Almost everything that we were taught that was normal that we grew up believing is being challenged and questioned, isn't it? Gender. <laughs> everything I saw this morning on Facebook by the way a guy who they've decided now not only can you choose your gender but you can choose your race there was a white guy who thinks he is a Filipino woman think about that he's a white guy but he thinks he's a Filipino woman so everything that we grew up believing and were taught is being questioned not only in the secular world but also in the church. 
Russell Moore just left the Ethics Committee of the Southern Baptists, which is one of the largest pr Protestant organizations in the world. I don't know, he felt the heat because at one time he was fairly conservative, but he signed on to a paper with some Islamists, some Baha'is, and all these other religions, and even, even atheists to kind of just come together. Let's just can't we all get along, come, come, come by ya and be, you know, he kind of, kind of gave up on his stance on, on biblical marriage, on abortion, those kind of things. So now he's going to be working with Christianity Today. So if you've got a subscription, you know, that, that magazine is shot, cancel it. <laughs> it's gotten so liberal. And the, the whole church is experiencing this kind of thing. It's not just the Southern Baptists. We've got pastors who won't stand on the Word of God. Fortunately for us, we do have one that does. So, you know, all this stuff is going on. My wife sent me a message. Uh, a guy had wrote. I want to read this guy to you guys real quick. He's an Australian guy. She follows on Facebook. And this is what he had to say. I think it's really good. The West is under judgment. I don't think there's any question about that, do you? People think they can go on doing as they please, and God does not judge them. You know, we hear that all the time. Well, don't judge me. We do not realize that doing as we please is God's judgment. That is our judgment. He allows us to have what we want. We don't realize that it's destroying us now, and it will destroy us eternally. This is the giving over often cited in Romans chapter 1, verses 18 and 24. It is God giving people up to exactly what they desire in their rebellion. The West is a people who are casting themselves headlong into sin, decadence, rebellion, and every lustful desire, and we marvel that nothing is stopping it. Indeed, we note that movements, leaders, and ideologies are being raised up which make it easier, which build permission structures to keep going, and the pace is rapidly accelerating. Why? This is the giving over. The West is under judgment. Nothing could be clearer. But then, it is a society that chemically castrates its children, tears the limbs off of innumerable unborn in their mother's wombs, openly pre preaches the idolatry of self, is entertained overwhelmingly by crudeness and sleaze, is thoroughly addicted to the demented perversion of modern pornography, and indulges every lustful appetite in the name of well-being and rights, just to start the list. Quite seriously, what should we expect? What ought God to do with such a den of injustice and iniquity? We know what he should do. He should wipe it out. Indeed, we're in the process of wiping ourselves out by getting what we want. That's what judgment looks like. I'm convinced that, on, that only miraculous moves of God's mercy and revival will save our society at this late stage. Pray for every day. Pray this every day. Separate yourselves from evil and don't waste your time because the judgment train is on the move.
That was written by Martin Lies from Australia. In Revelation's closing this morning, chapter 3, it says this, And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, These things saith he that hath the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works, and that you have a name that you live, and art dead. Be careful. And strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die. I have not found thy works perfect before God. Remember therefore how thou hast received and heard and hold fast and repent. If, there, if therefore thou shalt not watch, I will come on thee as a thief, and thou shalt not know what hour I will come upon thee. Thou hast a few names, even Sardis, which have not defiled their garments, and they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. We as a church today need to heed that advice. We're living in a time when we can't save our country anymore. We can't, maybe can't even save our town. We need to be concerned about the church and our family. We need to be concerned about how, you know, so many things that press in on us, and I feel this too. We, we have all these homes need repaired, and cars need serviced, and lawns need mowed, and on and on and on. We, we surrender to the tyranny of the urgent. And sometimes we should be just let the grass grow, let the house fall down, and get on our knees and get along with God if we want to see our kids in heaven. We want to see eternity changed. We want to see things that really matter. We've got to get our priorities right. We have a reputation. The church in America has a reputation of being alive, but a lot of the church in America is dead already. That's sad but true. And we can make a difference. There's a lot of preachers saying, hey, there's a big revival coming. That's not quite what I read in here. It says in the last days there will be a great falling away. And I think we may be witnessing that. Remember what, you, what Paul said here. When they say peace and safety... Oh, don't worry about that stuff. Don't worry about that stuff. Well, if the church is not awake and we're not worried about it, if we're not concerned about it, who will be? Who will be? Let's stand. Father, we thank you for your word. It's not all easy to swallow sometimes. As one of the prophets said, it's bitter in my mouth and it turned my stomach sour. These are your strong truths, the hard truths of your word. We need to be awake. We need to be sober. We need to be looking for your return. And we need to measure our days and how we spend them. I pray, Father, today for us as a church here at Calvary Chapel, that we would be faithful servants that are eyes and our hearts would be fixed on you help us lord to not be distracted to not fall asleep help us not to be discouraged or dismayed but to remember that your return is imminent and i pray father that you would just go with us as we go our separate ways speak to our hearts holy spirit come minister to your people for we know lord we know that you're faithful your word is true we know that you are coming again and that this time that we're experiencing of turmoil and tumult and chaos is just temporal. And as Paul said, these things that we're enduring, we are going to consider them light afflictions when we spend eternity with you.
Bless your people, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.